But as we look at our text for this morning, I just want to read verses uh, 1 through 5 for us because it kind of puts everything in context. And Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And then our text for this morning, for us, in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Uh, we've been in this little series here, trans- the transforming power of the gospel. And we've seen how the gospel demands service, a sacrifice. Uh, the gospel demands a new way of thinking about yourself. And that was in verse 3 of, of last week. And we looked at some common errors to our thinking, and, and basically he said there that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We just do that by default because of our sinfulness and our nature. And the way out of that is to think of the grace of God and remember who you once were. Uh, and then also, secondly, another error that we fall into, just in review, was to think too lowly of ourselves. In other words, almost a false humility. Uh, we have to not have a self-esteem because there's not a lot to esteem in ourselves. The Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no good thing that dwells in us. But because we are in Christ, we can have a Christ esteem. An esteem that comes from outside of ourselves based on who Christ is. So remember who we are in Christ. Um, Last week, we talked about thinking rightly about ourselves in verse 3, and it says there to do so with sober judgment. In other words, with a sound mind. Be realistic about yourself. Don't think you're more than what you are. Uh, If you're not an intellectual genius, don't try to be. Um, Sometimes when people tell me their name the first time, I just openly confess. Look, you're going to probably tell me this six, seven more times before I get it right. You know, and it's just something the way my mind works. It's hard to remember things sometimes. Um, especially the older you get, it seems the more harder time, the, the more difficult time I have remembering things. But it says here to do it with sober judgment. And we talked about three things that um, uh, Pastor Stedman brought up in one of his sermons. Uh, he said... Every day he remembers these three things. I am made in the image of God, first of all. That's a truth. Secondly, I am filled with the Spirit of God as a believer. That's what he does. He puts that deposit of the Spirit within you. And then thirdly, he says, I remember, I remind myself that I am part of the plan of God. Because sometimes, beloved, when we get out there in that world and it just starts beating on us, we can forget some of those things. And the minute you, the second you forget one of those things, the enemy 
opens the door and gets a foothold in there, and pretty soon you don't feel worthy of anything. And so we have to think rightly about ourselves. And it says they're in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given us. It refers to the correct measure of of a spiritual gift that's operating features, and we'll see that more next week as we get into some of the gifts here. But I left you with these four points, four practical steps to developing true humility. First of all, always keep God's grace in view. Always keep God's grace in view. If you lose sight of God's grace, what happens? Legalism crouches in, and pretty soon you're judgmental toward everybody. So we need to be reminded of that. Secondly, work on going lower, not higher. And this goes against everything the world tells you. It goes against everything that's within us. You know, we're out there climbing the ladder of success, and we just want to get to the top and and finally make it. Um, And the Bible says just the opposite. Don't focus on that. Don't worry about that. Focus on becoming more humble. And then thirdly, remember that all you have comes from God. That kind of says everything, right? Everything you have, the job you have, the children you have, the car you drive, the house you have. You say, well, didn't I work for that? Don't I work hard for the things that I enjoy? Sure you do. But who gave you the job? Who provided the job? Who provided the ability for you to go to school to get a degree to have the job? See, when you're a Christian, you realize everything comes from the Lord. And we don't have claims to any of it. Now, that doesn't mean we walk around with sackcloth on our heads with ashes and, woe is me, I'm completely undone. But we have to have a right, correct view of ourselves and realize that, you know what, all these things come from the Lord. And then the fourth thing is determine what God has given you to do and seek to use it for His glory, trusting Him for the results. Being in ministry for some 30 years, I realized that, you know what, that's one of the main hindrances in most churches. Most people have not determined what God has given them to do. And so they're kind of just out there doing nothing. (laughs) I mean, they come to church and kind of sit there and hear a sermon and sing and support maybe the, the ministry. But see, that's not the purpose of why you should be coming. You should be coming here to serve. Who are you going to serve today? Serve the Lord. In which capacity? I don't know. How has God gifted you? And so all those things were spoken about last last week. And that was a proper view, a new way of thinking about ourselves. Well, today we want to look about the gospel expects a new way of thinking about other believers other believers. We need to think right about fellow believers. And that's covered here in verses 4 to 5. Now, when we speak of the idea here in Romans 12, Paul is speaking specifically about spiritual gifts. And we'll get into that in the coming weeks. Uh, Those that are to be exercised for the spiritual ends within a fellowship. God has gifted us all with at least one spiritual gift. Now, you may not know what that spiritual gift is yet, but that doesn't mean he hasn't given it to you. Um, and so those those gifts are giving their prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, contributing to the needs of others, leadership, others, mercy. I mean, there's, there's do- various little lists throughout the New Testament of these gifts. But I think it's 
important that we have a, as Paul says, a sober kind of assessment or analysis of our natural abilities, our acquired skills, and those gifts that God has given to us by His grace. Sometimes we can confuse the two. I'm reminded of a story I read a couple weeks ago about Harry Ironside. He was a great Bible teacher in an earlier generation, really. But um, Ironside's father died when he was a very young boy. Um, So during his school days, during vacations on Saturdays, Ironside went and he had a job with a Scottish shoemaker helping him make shoes. His name was Dan McKay. And the man was a devout Christian. And he did his work very well because he knew who he served. And he had the opportunity uh, to come along as he would speak with his customers about not only the shoes that he was giving them and how what a wonderful quality they were because he worked so hard on them, but also the idea of being born again. Of the reason I do such a good job on your shoes is because I want to I want to uh, make sure that I'm, I'm doing this correctly for the Lord. And so Ironside's responsibility was to take this leather that, that came into their shop and pound it for the soles of the shoes. And the, the reasoning behind this, it was just cut cowhide that was soaked in water. And then it was placed on this piece of iron and it was pounded until it was hard and it was dry. And what it did is it gave this shoe leather a, kind of an extra strength. Uh, It gave it the ability to withstand almost anything. And so this toughened the leather. It made it last longer on the soles of the shoes. But this process took a very long time, as you can only imagine. I mean, you're pounding shoe leather. And one day, Ironside was walking home from his job, and he saw another cobbler shop there on the way. And he saw stood in the window and he watched the owner and he realized the owner was not pounding this leather at all. He was just taking this this leather that came to his shop and slapping it on the bottom of the shoes. And he was kind of curious, so he went inside and he asked him why he was doing his work the way he was. And he says, are they just as good as if they were pounded? He asked this owner. And the cobbler gave him this naughty wink and answered, They come back all the quicker this way, my boy. (laughs) See, Ironside thought that he had learned something important. And so the next day when he went to work, he went back to the Christian cobbler that he worked for, his boss, and he suggested, hey, maybe I'm just wasting my time pounding all this leather for you. I mean, it would help our business or whatever. We just don't do this at all. And Mr. McKay stopped his work. He opened his Bible to Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And he read this, Whatever you do, work at it with your whole heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And he said, Harry, I don't cobble shoes just for the money I get from my customers. I am doing this for the glory of God. I expect to see every shoe I have ever repaired in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ And I do not want the Lord to say to me on that day, Dan, this was a poor job. You did not do your best here. 
I want him to be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. See, it doesn't matter whether you're in ministry, whether you're at your secular job, whatever it is, Colossians says, whatever you do with your hands, do it for the glory, for the honor of the Lord. And so as we kind of work into these different gifts in the coming weeks, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. That, you know what, we're talking about working for the Lord, not just within the church, but even outside the church as well. And so when we look at our outline there, I have there, what is the church? And you might say, well, why are we talking about the church? I don't even see it mentioned here. Um, It's interesting, when you study the doctrine of the church, um, the word church, um, you might be surprised how many... uh, times that it does not show up in the Bible. How little it shows up, I guess I should say. It's not found anywhere in the Old Testament, that word church. Um, The first time it occurs is in Matthew 16, verse 18, and then again in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. It's not in the other Gospels at all. It's scattered throughout Acts about 18 times. It's found only five times in Romans. All in chapter 16, by the way. There's quite a few instances in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, 18, 19, nine times respectively. And then there's also, uh, the references here become less, become infrequent once again. And so when you stop and you think about it, in, in one version, the NIV, they say that the church occurs only 79 times in the Bible. And you think, wow, the church is such a big deal. You know? And what are we talking about when we're talking about the church? And see, Paul is beginning here in verse 4 to talk about just that, about the church. His discussion is going to deal with church unity, the distribution of spiritual gifts, the different kinds of gifts, the different kinds of people that receive those gifts, the way Christians are going to behave toward one another within the church. But he doesn't use the word church here. Look at the word he uses. In verse 4 he says, For as in one, what? Body. He uses the word body, referring to the body of Christ, the church. It's a powerful image for the church when you stop and you think about it. He speaks of Christ's body just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all do the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So what is the church? Well, when you speak of the church, you have to kind of clarify what you're talking about, right? You have something called the universal church. It's composed of all the believers throughout the entire world. But you also have something referred to as the local church. A lot of times when these Letters were written. They were written to a local church at a local place with believers who came to that place to worship. And so a local church would be composed of local believers who meet together. We would be considered, Grace Bible Church is a local church here, but we're not the only church. There's other churches. And sometimes we use the word church kind of casually. Where are you going? I'm going to church. What do we mean? We mean a building, right? We mean an address. Uh, we speak about the church building. We, 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 we speak of it in that vernacular. Um, 
Now, we know that the church is made up of people. Remember the little thing you used to teach your kid? Here's the church, there's the steeple, open it up, see all the people. Um, you know, that, that is an important concept. A church without any people is what? It's a building. It's just a building. There's nothing there. A church has to compose of people. And today we have lots of different kinds of churches. Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches, non-denominational churches. Are all of them members of the church? And if so, what in what sense? Um, so you have to look at this composition of the church. What does this mean? Well, Paul says here, For as in one body we have what? Many members. We have many members. And that's an important point. Because today, church membership is kind of a lost thing with most churches. You know, we can just come and hang out and do whatever, and it's not a big deal. But the Bible does speak of being members of the church. And so the composition of the church, Paul introduces this concept here of the church... And it's used, as I said, only twice in the Gospels. But it's important that we we understand, well, what makes up this church? Well, he says here, many. Many. He uses the word body to describe the church. Many members in one body. So many tells us that there are a large number of people who belong to the church. Technically, the church started small, right? You look at the book of Acts. You look at the Gospels, Jesus and his disciples, and then including the, the 70 disciples, others, women at the cross, you had Zacchaeus and Nicodemus. In Acts chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, it gives us an idea who made up the church. It says, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the districts of uh, uh, Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. So the church was made up of many different kinds of people. In Acts chapter 2, it says that it's expanded. The church expanded. It said that at one point there was 3,000 people added to the church. Now remember, we're, we're speaking of the universal church here. Because Acts also tells us that they went house to house after the church was established. It'd be kind of tough to get 3,000 people in your house, I would assume. So it's speaking of the universal church. After first, after uh, Peter's first sermon, Acts chapter 4, verse 4 says another 5,000 were added. So this is the beginning stages of the church. And it spread like wildfire for, fire for the next 300 years. Because it was under persecution. And when it became law of the land under Constantine, the church grew weak and compromised. In other words, they said, all right, we're going to have a national church and you have to belong to it. And then it, it just kind of compromised and, and just kind of grew very, very weak. And then during the Reformation, it grew exponentially. And if you go back, an interesting thing to do is go back and read some of the stories of the early reformations and what went on. I mean, you had social, economic landscapes change 
overnight. I read one article. It said the coal miners in this one place had such a problem after this revival because so many of them became believers. And the story went on. It said they couldn't get their horses to move. So they couldn't carry the coal. And they said, well, why couldn't they? Because they wouldn't cuss. They wouldn't kick their horse. They wouldn't be mean at their horse anymore because they were born again. They were new. They were a new person. So they had all this backlog of, of issues that they had to deal with just because real, true transformation, real, true revival happened. And it changed the whole landscape. And so when the many come together, they form a local church. Um, but what are the, the characteristics of a church? What makes a church? In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says this, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They experienced the power of God and the signs and wonders. They shared life together. They saw God work. In, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, And the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who were what? Being saved. So what makes a church? I gave you a little list there. It says, first of all, they meet. They meet together. They meet together. There's no such thing as an online, interactive church. I'm sorry. I mean, I know people want to believe that. Because it's a lot more convenient to sit in your living room and watch some preacher and you know think, well, I'm going to church. No, you're not. That's not church. Because church consists of people who come out and they meet together for the purpose of worshiping the Lord. Um, now, there are places today in the world that what? The... It's almost, it's very difficult for them to come out and to worship together because their lives are at risk. I understand that. But for the most part, here in America especially, um, a church is composed of people, believers in Christ, who come out to worship together. Secondly, they're led by biblically qualified leaders. And if they're being led, that indicates that people are willing to submit Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. See, this is very serious. This isn't some joke. This isn't, you know, some, you know, social experience, experiment that we're doing here. Um, You know, this has a spiritual impact. As leaders within the church, we realize there's a responsibility to watch over your souls, to care for your your spirituality, to care for your spiritual growth. I think most people who attend church don't even understand what that means. The reason I say that is a lot of times when people have issues, when people have problems, the last place they go to is those who are leaders within the church. They'll go pay a psychologists or a psychiatrist to sit on their couch for hours and, you know, tell them all their problems. But they're unwilling to come to those who are keeping watch over their souls spiritually. So they have a failure of understanding there what the church is about. Well, thirdly, the, the teaching and preaching of the Bible is central to the church. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 to 16 Paul writes this, prescribe and teach these things, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, 
to exhortation, to teaching, take pains with these things. In other words, these are very serious, Timothy. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both of yourself and of those who hear you. You can, you can sense the seriousness in Paul's words as he instructs this young pastor regarding his role as a pastor, as an elder. Well, the fourth thing you do as a church is you worship together. And worship isn't just the music. You know, I've heard people sometimes come out of church and go, I didn't care for the worship there. It's like, wow, what's that mean? You know, so what do you mean by that? You know, and they mean the music. Because a lot of times that's what we dumb down the word worship to mean, just the music. No, the worship is prayer, music, the word, our fellowship together, breaking bread together, all those things. Um, you know, we, we want to keep everything God-centered. Uh, we want to keep songs hopefully focused on, on the Lord and on encouraging you and your walk with the Lord. Sometimes, some songs you can sing these songs and they're catchy tunes and all, but when you look at the words without the music, you go, wow, this could be a love song for somebody. It's nothing to do with the Lord. And so we have to be selective. We have to be careful. Um, fifthly, they practice the ordinances. What are the ordinances that we practice? Water, baptism, the Lord's table. Okay, we have communion. We, if, if someone desires baptism and they're a believer, that's what this thing is over here. Fill it up with nice warm water and dunk you. Okay, put you under. That's what the word baptism means. It means to immerse. Sometimes people go to the beach. Some people get baptized in a, a creek or a creek. I was baptized in a creek in Pennsylvania, and there's still snow on the ground when I got baptized. It was, it was freezing. So you practice the ordinances. Sixthly, as a church, you practice church discipline. Matthew 18 outlines this. Jesus said, if you have a brother or sister who sins and won't repent, you're to uh, confront him one-on-one, then two-on-one, and then tell it to the church. One statistic said, I bet 95% of churches in America fail to do this, the idea of church discipline. And the idea of church discipline, beloved, just so you understand, it's not, you know, kick the brother out, kick the sister out, you know. No, it's restoration. That's the whole driving purpose behind it. And sometimes church discipline happens slowly. It doesn't happen just like that. Because you want to allow a season for the person who's being disciplined for the Lord to convict them and for a window of opportunity so they can repent. Because the goal is restoration. And then seventh, they evangelize the lost by faithful proclamation of a gospel, the true gospel, of a gospel that I would say is not watered down. All right, It's not a gospel that proclaims how Jesus is going to make you happy, happy, happy and meet all your felt needs. No, it's a gospel like we've been talking about, this transforming power of the gospel that demands sacrifice, that demands a service. And so we have to be willing to share that. And then eighth, they do life and ministry together like a family. You know, whether you like it or not, as Grace Bible Church, and you come here and, and you, you fellowship here, you're part of a family. Now, not all people in the family get along all the time. That's fine. That's just the way it is. But there's a unity there. 
you know and it's it's important that we understand that that a family should operate like a family and see it's it's very important when you remember probably when you're growing up and you got in trouble i mean just because you got in trouble or just because you know you had a falling out or whatever that didn't mean you weren't part of that family you were still part of that family you may not have felt like it but you're still part of it and so we have to be reminded of that that that's an important thing to look at it as family so it's it's the word many as we use here to describe the church but then also paul says many what many members Many members. Now, if you've ever talked about membership with anything, you know, um, it's a club or whatever, it's an organization, are you a member? Well, inevitably, to be a member, what do you have to do? You have to fulfill certain requirements. Not everybody's a member, or you wouldn't have members. Um, and so it's important that we, we see that. And, and one of the requirements to be a member of of God's church, even the, the universal church, you might say, is repentance. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Repent and believe in the gospel. And Jesus used this word over and over. It's a primary word Jesus used when he declared the gospel. He used it 24 times in the gospels. It's used in John. Um, in Luke 3.3, 3, it says, He came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, repentance basically means what? It means a change of mind. It means a change of direction. And we've all, as believers, had that repentive moment in our salvation experience. That point in time where, you know what? We knew we weren't a Christian, but someone shared some information about the gospel with us and the Spirit worked, transformed our heart, and, and pretty soon we said, no, this makes sense. I, I, need this. I want to do this. <laughs> I want to commit my life to Christ. I want the forgiveness that He's offering. I need the forgiveness that He's offering. I want to go to heaven. See, and God changes your mind, whereas before maybe those things were not so important. It's a change of direction, a change of mind. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, Paul was preaching to the, the Jews. In Jer, uh, Jer, Peter was preaching to the Jews here in Jerusalem. And right after Jesus' ascension, and it says this after his preaching, it says they were pierced to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. See, that's what has to happen when someone comes to Christ. They have to be pierced to the heart. They have to be brought to the point of undoneness. <laughs> they just realize there's nowhere else to go. That's what happens when someone comes to Christ. If their heart is never touched, if there's no grief over their sin, if there's no repentance, if there's no change of, of their mind and their direction concerning Christ, then guess what? They're not born again. They haven't been transformed by the power of the gospel. And so we want to be very clear that that transformation comes as a result of God working in their heart. The Bible even tells us that God grants us repentance. It's not something we just conjure up on our own. And so we have to be careful when we share the gospel with people. And, you know, we have to give them that understanding of what that means to repent. You have to throw yourself before God and realizing that you're not going to change yourself. You're not going to change your own mind. It's God that has to step in and, and transform you. Give you that new way of thinking about Him. And their hearts were touched. 
And then it says, well, what should we do? Because if we're pierced to the heart, what do we do with this message we just heard? We're changed now. And Peter said in Acts 2.38, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. Now, Peter wasn't saying, oh, baptism causes your sins to be washed away. We like to think of it that way, but it's not. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation, because if it were... It would be a work. And if it was a work, you'd have problems with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says we're not saved by works. So it can't be a work for our salvation. But it's a reflection of an inward change. It's an outward demonstration of an inward change. In baptism, the word means to immerse itself. So some people say, well, what about sprinkling? Well, that's not baptism. You can get sprinkled all day long. It's just not baptism. You're redefining the word. That's, that's not what baptism is. And it's, it's being able to identify with your newfound faith, with this transformation that's happened. And back in the day of the Bible, back in the day of the New Testament church, when people got baptized, it was a big deal. Why? Because usually it happened in public. It didn't happen in some warm little jacuzzi here with all your Christian friends. Okay, it happened out in the river. And people are walking by going, oh... There's, there's Jane, man. No, I can't believe she became one of those cr- crazy Christians. I'm not going to her shop anymore. I'm not going to buy her bread anymore. You know, she's... she's and so you, you had this social blight on all the Christians. And when you made that statement of baptism in the open like that, usually there were consequences that followed. And so Paul says... or. Uh, yeah, Paul says that basically there's, a, there's, a, there's an important aspect of becoming a member of the church. And you have to have that idea that, you know what, there's, there's a, a change of heart. Repentance is a very important thing. It's the primary message of the gospel. The primary message of the gospel is not what the church has made it today. When you think of the gospel... If you ask any probably average Christian to describe the gospel in one word, they would probably say something like love. Or they would say something like forgiveness. Or something like God's grace. Now, all those are part of the gospel. But see, to have any of that, the first thing that has to happen is there has to be a change of heart. There has to be a change of mind. There has to be repentance. And when we repent, something happens. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized, now this is talking about spiritual baptism, into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit, Paul says. And so he says there, one Spirit, one baptism. When you come to Christ, you are baptized into the universal church. Spiritually. God changes you. He, he transforms you. And now you are placed into the body of Christ. You are one of his, the members that he speaks of. And that's what Paul is trying to get it across here for us in verses 4 and 5. He says, we're members of one another. We're all in this together. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, this is a, a, a blessing of a verse. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, speaking of the church, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That you know what, when it comes to the church, it doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're male or female. It's irrelevant. It's totally, completely irrelevant. There's no ethnic, gender, or socioeconomic barriers to membership in the universal church. Matter of fact, we all start at the same place, don't we? We all start, what? We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, Well, how do you know if you're a member of this church? How do you know if you're a believer, in other words? Well, 1 John 3, we've been studying this on Wednesday nights, verse 14. 1 John 3, 14 says that you have a love for the brethren. You have a love for the brethren. Or 1 John 2, verse 3, it says you'll keep his commandments. See, don't buy into the lie that after you become a Christian that you're just, you know, free to do whatever you want. Nothing's going to take away that salvation. But trust me, you're beholden to God's truth and to His Word. And so, you know, there's a, there's a belief today going around kind of free grace. You know, once you're, once you're a Christian, all your sins are forgiven, so you can just go do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. So keep His commandments. And so the one body here in Romans 4 stresses this kind of, 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 you might say, cohesiveness of the whole group. It really does. And that's the second thing here, the cohesion of the church. It's one body. One body. Um, and it bridges all, all gaps. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 to 16 says, There is one body and one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over us all who is over all and through all and in all. See, that implies there's this cohesive nature to the church. Some say that church membership, local church membership, is not in the Bible. I would have to argue with that. I would have to argue with that. There's a lot of different places where you get the idea that these people belonged as members to something locally. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it says the whole congregation. It's a group of people, people that actually joined that congregation. Or Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it talks about the church in Jerusalem. Okay, It's not talking about the church over here. It's talking about the church over here. Well, how would you distinguish? Well, they're members of that church. Or Acts chapter 9, verse 26 it speaks of the disciples in Jerusalem. Or Acts 14.23, it says, in every church. The idea that there's more than, than one church locally. Acts 15.17 speaks of the whole church. And you might say, well, what's the big deal about membership in a local church? Who cares? I mean, if I'm coming, if I'm faithful, whatever. Well, I, I wrote some things down here for you. Reasons for membership. First of all, it's kind of a picture. It reflects your salvation. Romans 12.5 says, We indeed are members of one another. We are members of one another. See, when you place your membership in a local church, you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm part of this group. I agree with you theologically. I agree with what's going on here, and I want to become part of this. 
It also reflects submission to authority. We spoke of Hebrews thirteen seventeen, where it calls on those within the church to obey your leaders. That's probably the number one reason why people don't join the church. They're afraid of submitting to authority. Maybe they've had a bad, bad, bad uh, experience in another church, whatever it might be. But whatever, it's it's that's just a red flag. I mean, nobody likes the word submission anyway. So that's just kind of a a hard thing to get through their head. And then thirdly, it reflects mutual commitment. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says that we should be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Well, how are you going to know who you're supposed to be devoted to if we don't know who is part of the group? Um, The church is a place of belonging as well as believing. And so you have to be open to that. Also, fourthly, it reflects, reflects our call to serve. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says in verses 11 and 12, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, teachers, for what? The equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. All right, we're called to serve one another within the body of Christ. If we don't know who's in the body of Christ locally, how do we know who we're supposed to serve? And then fifthly, it connects you with an ultimate purpose for living. All your works will be one day judged at the judgment seat of Christ. First, or Second Corinthians five ten it tells us that. First uh, Corinthians three thirteen. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Work. Well, what will be the test of your work? Your job? Your degree? How much you have in your bank account? No, it says in verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.14, If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. All right? It's what you're doing spiritually for the cause of Christ. And then also it presents a united front to the world Verse 47 of Acts 2, praising God and having favor with all people. And I'll just say this, God never intended Christians to hop from church to church because of the hip music or because of this or because of that. I mean, obviously, if there's doctrinal issues and you've got to leave your church and go to another one, that's fine. I mean, that's, that's a clear concern. Okay? Um, but as a pastor, I can concern sometimes with people just kind of bailing and, and going from church to church. That doesn't help your spiritual growth. Um, a lot of times those people are looking for something in a church that they'll never find, and it's not going to exist. <laughs> um, so it, it's important that we see that. And also, you know, some people get tired of the church. They've been maybe been to three or four churches, and they, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. The church is my home. <laughs> And I'm just going to sit here with Charles Stanley every week, and that's going to be my church. And it's a lot easier. I don't have to deal with all these crazy people and all this stuff. No, that's, that's found nowhere in Scripture. That's not what we're called to do. Okay, we're called to come out and to meet together. That's what the, the practice was in the New Testament. And is it a sacrifice to do that? Definitely. It is. I mean, it takes time. There's a lot of people that would probably much rather they could find something else to do on a Sunday morning than go to church. The, the, the place we live in, this Bay Area, is, is clearly that's the case. And it creeps into the church in different ways. 
You know, nowadays, if you're any of your kids are involved in any kind of sporting activities, it's very important that you kind of understand, well, when do they have their games? How is that going to affect our church time? Because they don't care. They'll have games Sunday morning. They'll have, I remember Redwood City one time, they had the, the 4th of July parade, and they decided to have it Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. I was like, really? I mean, you know, they just disregard. They have no... No concern about well, maybe the you know thousands of people that are going to a local church on that day, and so it's important that you know we we understand that this is a, a commitment. Um, USA Today found that a survey forty six percent of those who attend church do so because it is good for you. Twenty six go because it is where they hope to find peace of mind and spiritual well being. That's not how you look for a church. It's just not the way that you would go about that. Uh, it's, it's very important that you understand that, you know what, the church is here for a reason. We're, we're gathered together. We have a cohesive bond with one another. And it's important to become um, members of a local church. Thirdly, you see the cooperation of the church here in the text. It says, members do not all have the same function, speaking of their gifts in the way they serve. See, there's not only this cohesive unity within the church, but Paul points out there's also a diversity. See, the church isn't, you know, to join a church isn't saying, okay, you have to fall in step and be like a clone of the pastor or the elders or whoever. That's not a proper view of what the church is about. As a matter of fact, the church should look anything but that. It should be diverse. People from different backgrounds. We shouldn't all be cookie-cutter Christians, you know, walking, marching together. That's not the way the body of Christ is. And that's why there has to be a cooperation within the church. Because we're all coming at it from different angles, different personalities, different giftings. And so when he says here in verse 4, all the members do not have the same function. That word function, praxis, has the idea of enterprise or transaction or practice. In other words, everyone doesn't have the same job. Everyone doesn't have the same ministry. And if you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll get into this further, but just so you know, Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 15 to 17, he he gives a picture of the church, of the body of Christ. He says, if the foot says, because I am not the hand, I am not part of the body. Is it not for this reason any the less part of the body? And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, is it not for this reason any the less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? I mean, that's that's a very comical statement Paul's making. First of all, it would just be weird. It's a giant eyeball. Okay? No legs. It just roll around. I don't know. I mean, that would be just slimy mess. But he says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? And he continues down in verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifting and healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of languages. Are not all, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gift of healings, do they? All do not speak uh, with various languages, do they? All do not interpret, do they? 
regarding ministry, he says in, in chapter 12, verse 4 to 6, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. And so Paul uses three words to describe the diversity that we have in any local church. All are described as varieties or uh, varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, and varieties of effects. I mean, arms can't function without elbows. It wouldn't happen. Shoulders and hands. We all need each other. Our feet need legs, hips. It's the same thing in the church. So what's your gift? How are you using it? You notice in that list of gifts, pew sitting wasn't a gift. <laughs> just so you know, just being you know up front here. You know, there's no. Well, I, I'm the I'm in the observation tower over here. You know, uh, no. That's, that's not part of the gifting. Well, the fourth thing here is the core of the church. What makes up the core of the church? Um, it says one body, what? In Christ. One body in Christ. See, the church is not an organism or an organization. It's not an organization. The church is an organism. All right? It's, it's something that's living. It's not... See, that's why the modern-day church... Some of these churches get in, in, into trouble because they'll take the practices of their, their big mega organization, their secular organization, and say, well, we want to transfer all these practices to the church. And some of them may transfer. I mean, we can learn a lot from secular organizations and things like that as far as administration and things like that. But you can't make a direct transfer because we're not an organization. We're an organism. And the oneness that we share, we share in Christ. Um, Galatians 3.28, I read that before. Um, or Romans 8.1, Therefore there is no now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. If you're in the church, there's no condemnation there for you. Or Colossians 1.27, God willed to make known what was, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Nothing has ever existed before the church was born that was even remotely like the church. The idea that God would come down and indwell us as the church via the Holy Spirit. I mean, what a, what a crazy thought it was for a lot of the people in the New Testament. And yet that's exactly what the church is. And Christ is our head. Colossians 1.18. Christ is also the head of the body of the church. Or Colossians 2.19. We are to hold fast to the head from the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. And so when you stop and you think about the church, it's a lot more than just a simple building. All right, It involves, at its very core, Christ as the center point. The last thing here, the commitment of the church. It says in verse 5 that we are individually members of one another. We're members of one another. This doesn't mean that we just come here and do our little spiritual gift thing and then go home. We're, we're, we're brought together as a body's brought together. You know, you don't just go home and say, oh, my foot's hurting, you know, I think I'm going to take it off and put it in the sink and let it soak for a while. No. Why? Because it's attached to you. Okay, you just can't physically do that. And so, it's kind of a weird illustration maybe, but... It, I mean, I'm just saying we're all together in this. So if, if somebody within the body of Christ is hurting, 
then the whole body hurts. See, the whole body is called to concern. And it's not just coming here on Sunday mornings and doing your time, punching your ticket, and going home. That's not what they did in the New Testament. It says they went day to day, house to house, meeting together, having fellowship, meals together, all kinds of things. And granted, I mean, you may not enjoy everybody in our local church here. Well, pick some of the people that you do enjoy and fellowship with them. You know, I mean, we have to be realistic, too. We're not all going to totally get along with everybody and just enjoy everybody's presence all the time. There's certain people that maybe you'll be drawn to, minister to, and they'll minister to you. And there's other people that maybe you won't be drawn to. That's okay. But you have to understand that we're all together in this. And I, I listen, I'm not going to go through all these, but this, this, this idea of being committed to one another is very important that, you know, if you read through that little graphic there, um, there's a lot of things that we're called to do for one another. Just go online and type in the one another's of Scripture, of the New Testament, and you'll find a whole bunch of stuff that we're supposed to be doing for each other. And see, when those things are done, and they're done correctly, and they're done through the Spirit of Christ, then you know what? When you start practicing your spiritual gifts, there's no issues. There's not an issue of you looking at somebody practicing their spiritual gifts and saying, well, why do they get the right to do that? I want to do that. Or I'm not going to do this. Because you realize, wait a minute, no, God has gifted me with this spiritual gift. And I need to do everything I can to be members of one another and to serve each other. You know, members of one another is kind of like notes on a piano. I mean, when you, when you stop and think about it, you have eight notes there on a scale, 13 half steps. And basically, at least eight are used in every song. And if you didn't use them, it would be very boring music. One note is not a melody. You can't just go, bing, oh, that's a wonderful song. No. All right? You have to have other notes around it. You have to have chords. You have to, you know, put together a piece of music that is to be appealing. It has to encourage the use of all kinds of different notes. And that's the same way it is with the body of Christ. And I'll just leave you with this verse. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Paul speaks to our hearts and he says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You know, when it comes right down to it, the church is really all we have. It really is. I mean, I know your family's important. I know your job's important. I know all these other things are important. But the unity we share here together is going to last into all eternity. And so why not work on it now? You know, that's that's important to realize that. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the church. Thank you for calling us to be part of it, to be members of it individually, but then also to be uh, drawn together as one body. And Father, we just thank you for this church, Grace Bible Church, and its stand on the word of God. And Lord, we thank you for the people that make up um, this body and how they serve you in many different ways and how they care for each other and uh, pray for each other on a regular basis. And, and Father, we pray that, above all, that we could just be honest and transparent with each other. 
And Lord, realize that we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And Father, that uh, that the world would see that and, and recognize, wow, there's something different there. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to hearts this morning. If there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, uh, Lord, maybe they haven't reached that point of repentance yet. But Lord, uh, you know what's needed uh, to bring them there. And so Lord, we pray that you would do that work of transformation in their heart. And Lord, as they sense that, I pray that they would cooperate with that and come to you and, and confess their need of a Savior. And Lord, we just pray that simple prayer, just Lord, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, when that's prayed from a sincere heart, we know that it does that uh, mighty work in the heart. And so, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for our time here today. And pray you bless our fellowship over in the hall afterwards as well. And just uh, thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.